Nothing can wear you out like caring about people. S.E. Hinton. Hey guys, it's Benji K. And this is Benji Was Here, the podcast. on the pod we're doing something a little different something a little deeper something that fucking matters this week we decide to give a damn as great as the other podcasts are this one matters a little bit more to me i sit down with the founder of operation broken silence mark hackett to talk about nonprofits, humanitarian white saviorism and the country of sudan i'm really touched by his passion and his vigor for humans This is really personal to me because I used to be in nonprofit world, been burned out, but really excited to see the changes he's making in the world. Sometimes it just takes people to give a damn, and that's what I want more of, people to give a damn. Enjoy this week's episode, and at the end, please think about giving to Mark and his uh, organization to help people in Sudan create a new life. They're doing it themselves, and we can be just a small part of it. I'm really proud of the work he's doing, and um, I really hope that you are touched by what's going on in the world. Again, Mark Hackett. Mark, thank you for joining me. This is really exciting. I haven't talked to you in a long time. Yeah, man. This is exciting. You have That's a podcast good. now. <laughs> oh, no. I like I, I when I started it, I always say I like the world doesn't need another podcast, but they're so <laughs> easy to do and they're so like fun to connect with people. Um and so why not, you know? Yeah. Um but um you're still having a nonprofit, which is great. But we're gonna get into that. But first but first before anything, what I like to do is I kinda like journeys, I like paths. And, you know, we crisscross and there's intersections and things like that. And so I normally start this pretty simple. How did we meet or where did we meet? Yeah, I don't remember exactly when we met. It was in high school. Cause it was we, a we both, long time ago, <laughs> we, brother. We're <laughs> old. <laughs> we, uh, we both went to the same high school. So we met somewhere probably in ninth or 10th grade. Before we could drive. (laughs) Yep. But but honestly, we really reconnected once I got back from maybe L.A. or maybe while I was in L.A. Because I was working for Tom's and and other nonprofits like Falling Whistles and other things. And you were doing Operation Broken Silence here. And so it all kind of, we kind of connected there, right? Yeah. Yeah. I guess that was what, like 2010? Yeah, I was in like so that. I, I went to Tom's. I went to Tom's like, I guess 2010. I think like January 2010 because I graduated. No, 2011. 2011 because t- 2010 I graduated. Oh, it doesn't matter. Nobody cares about this. But we we crossed paths in the nonprofit world. Um, I was kind of working for B Corps and some other things, um, and then you started your own. Which brings me to the first thing. How the heck did you get involved in this world? Yeah. I always love when I go speak places because 
like people know it's going to be about Sudan and then like a six foot two white guy gets on stage. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Like, what? And like, oh, this is going to be interesting. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, uh, I started getting involved in Sudan, uh, shortly after high school. Um, so about 2007, 2008. Um, at that point I was like, like your classic suburban white kid, you know, Ben folds rock in the suburbs. <laughs> that that era um you know i I knew there was a bigger world out there but never really had a opportunity to understand it or you know learn about it um and about 2007 2008 i stumbled into the sudanese community here in memphis um so memphis actually has one of the largest sudanese refugee communities uh in the entire country Um, no kidding i didn't even know that yeah so uh that at that time there were about 11, 1,200 Sudanese who were living here. Um, and of course, also at that time, uh, the crisis in Darfur in Western Sudan was going on, and that was all over the news. Um, so I was seeing Darfur on the news and then meeting Sudanese here mm-hmm. and was like, all right, this isn't a coincidence that these things are happening at the, the exact same time. Um, so yeah, I started getting involved with some American advocacy groups that were doing things in Sudan. Um, but over the years I started realizing a lot of the things these advocacy groups were saying and trying to get done, um, didn't match up with what the Sudanese were saying they needed, Mm. (laughs) uh, which was concerning to me. Um, so 2012, rolls around by that point, I decide, um, I actually need to go over to Sudan for myself and, uh, see firsthand what's happening and actually listen to people directly on the ground. Um, and once you go on a a trip like that, um, we visited two refugee camps on that trip and then crossed, uh, the border, um, into Sudan, into one of the war zones there, um, and spent some time, uh, in some of the frontline areas, uh, to get an idea of what was actually going on. Um, and that's really where I learned what the Sudanese actually wanted from the rest of us in the world. Um, and shockingly, it was nothing that uh, the groups were advocating for. Um, so, I, so I started <laughs> That's up, insane. That's yeah. insane in itself. It's like people are trying to help. But like before we get too far into yeah. it, because I, 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 love, I love how it like stacks on, like compounds on each yeah. other, right? It's not just one thing. Um, Okay, so you said you got involved in, here locally with like Sudanese groups. Was it is it like a um, I don't know like a advocacy group you heard about online? Like how does one bump into that thing? Um, yeah, so um, so when I met the Sudanese here, um, even some of them were disconnected from back home because they had been here in the U.S. for so long at that point. Um, and so they didn't really know a way for me to get like personally involved with things on the ground over there because even they were disconnected to a certain mm-hmm. degree from it. Um, so I started looking around for myself of like what organizations in the world are doing anything on or in Sudan. Um, not did you a put lot. The Google, <laughs> did you put the Google alert? Because I remember, so <laughs> I got, I got involved a little bit with um, nonprofits and kind of just humanitarian work because I saw this film um, the Invisible Children's film, The Rough Cut, the mm-hmm. first one ever. And I like cried my eyes out. I was bawling. I was like all over the place. And, I, and then I was like, I need to learn everything. So I set the Google alert 
to ding me anytime like, <laughs> anything comes up about it. So I just got like, I wanted to find anything and everything. But then I also found a lot of stuff that was, like you said, crap or whatever, people not using it correctly. But I remember that early stage of like, I just need more information. I need to help. Yeah, and I, I needed, uh, I was in the same boat at that time. Uh, I need information. And frankly, there wasn't a lot of information. Um, mm. You know, we'll get into the nuts and bolts of Sudan soon, I'm sure. But uh, the Sudanese government does not like journalists coming in and mm. coming back and saying, hey, here's all the terrible things the Sudanese government is doing to its own people. Um, so there wasn't a ton of information out there. Um, so, you know, I did every, I set the Google alert up. Um, you know, I was trying to reach out to other Sudanese to, to try to figure out, you know, if they could connect me to, to more people over there. Um, and yeah, the, those first few years were pretty frustrating because it felt like nothing was really changing or getting done. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, and yeah, so that's why I decided actually to start going over there and, um, you know, figure things out on my own. That's a, that's a, that's a big leap in itself, but I, I think of more of like every day, like I think there's so many times that, especially in American culture, we get, we get put things in front of our faces, right? Like this terrible war or this hunger thing or this you know like we we get so much that sometimes I was actually talking to someone the other day and I was like I don't really ever know what is like true or what's not true right like I, mm-hmm. I don't know how to parse out my truth how do you parse out your truth especially when you first start getting into something like a cause or a, a situation or a crisis Man, that's a great question. <laughs> um, you know, I think a lot of it, uh, I'd say probably two things. Um, the first is, you know, some of it's just gut instinct. Um, you know, some of it's just you've been alive long enough to know when you're being BSed. Or, <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah. um, or there's another it, intention, like somebody has yeah. higher intention for whatever they're talking about. Yeah, and... Um, so I think I think that's an important thing too. The more people you talk to, like for me, the more Sudanese I talk to, the more people uh, who I talked to who had been around Sudan for a longer time, you know, it became easier over time to figure out like, all right, who's actually knows what's going on here, you know, who actually has their their ear to the ground, um, and who's just kind of talking for attention or you know thinks they're doing something good when it's just okay, you know, all that kind mm-hmm. of stuff. Um, I think, I think the second thing, and you alluded to this in your, your question of like, what even is truth? (laughs) (laughs) Which we are, we are living in that world now, aren't we? Um, you know, for, for me, I I think a lot of people are surprised to hear this because I'm really private, um, about my personal faith, uh, as a Christian. Uh, I, I don't talk about it a lot publicly. Um, you know, for me, like being grounded in that truth um, and being able to see the world through, um, you know, maybe a different worldview than some other people see. But, you know, one of the, the core tenets of, of Christianity is trying to, you know, there's, a de- there's supposed to be a desire in Christians to seek truth out, mm. um, not just to take something as it is and just believe it. Um and so, you know, I kind of, at least for me, I had that kind of built into kind of my my personal belief system. So when I started going around trying to figure out what was going on in Sudan and, you know, what was right and what was wrong, what was up, what was down, um, 
you know, I had something I was already grounded in to help kind of put some guardrails up for me. I love that. Even as somebody who I'm not religious at Mm -hmm. all anymore, but like, I do believe in those like pillars, right. Or those, like those strong holds that you have your values in and they don't change no matter what. So, um, if it's, you know, faith or if it's just your core values or if it's something that you've lived by or experience or whatever they may be, that's kind of like your pillars for truth. Or at least that is how I kind of parse out truth and non-truth is like, I know that this pillar is strong and holds me up. And if that's counterintuitive to what I'm reading, hearing, or listening to, I know that it's bullshit, basically. Yeah. Like, that's yeah. kind of how <laughs> I parse it out personally. But I feel like that you are similar because you have your faith, and that's like a first pillar that holds you hold you grounded whenever you're doing your work. Yeah, and it's a, you know, it's a moral compass, too, of... Um, you know, a place like Sudan is very, very complicated, and oftentimes there's no right or wrong. There just is what there is. <laughs> right. And, you know, moral questions in Sudan get very tricky very quickly. Um, <laughs> and so, so you know, having those pillars to fall back on in times when things get really stressful or when decisions have to be made very quickly, um, you know, I wouldn't be able to do my job without without that. Okay, so now now we're about 10 minutes into it. I'm going to ask you an impossible question because Great. <laughs> I know I know people who are listening to this they're like, "Okay, I know like George Clooney once said something about Darfur years ago, but mm-hmm. like why still in Sudan? Could you give a nugget breakdown of what has happened in Sudan and what is continuing to happen um for a country that's pretty much been at this for 30 years, right?" Yeah. Um, yes, I'm going to blow back several, you know, blow over several decades of, of history here, just in the interest (laughs) of, (laughs) yeah, there's a Uh, lot of information. Yeah, yeah, there is. Uh, You can go to our website to, to find everything. Um, no, I mean, uh, you know, unfortunately, like a lot of, uh, uh, African countries, you know, Sudan's issues are rooted in colonialism, um, and the way the uh, the British ruled Sudan really set things up for the way Sudan's uh, the way Sudan is today. Um, but you know, skipping kind of to more present day, um, you know, when Sudan became independent in 1956, um, there was a, a battle of ideologies that started taking place. Um, and there's two ideologies that eventually won out over the past at least few decades. Um, one was, uh, something we call Arab supremacy. So think about like white supremacists here in the U S. Um, we've seen a lot of that on the news the Mm. past few years, unfortunately. Um, and so Arab supremacy is very similar to that, except believing that, um, Sudanese tribes who are Arab, who are ethnically Arab should inherit Sudan essentially and be allowed to rule over it and essentially make Sudan a completely Arab state. Um, alongside that uh, was another ideology, uh, a very extreme violent strain of Islam. Um, now, most Sudanese Muslims are very moderate. They're very nice people. You know, they have no problem with Christians or people who don't believe in anything at all. Um, but a, a lot of the Arab supremacists realized they could use political Islam, specifically a very violent version of it, for their vision for the country essentially. Um, so that all, all culminated in 1989, uh, when a guy named Omar al-Bashir took over in a military coup. 
Um, and unsurprisingly, his goal, you know, he literally stood in Khartoum with a Kalashnikov rifle and a Quran screaming. Um, if you can find the video online, it's really something to watch. <laughs> um, mm. And he pretty much says, like, I'm going to turn Sudan into an ethnically Arab state ruled by Sharia law. And, you know, a large number of Sudanese are black. You know, they're not Arab. Um, you know, Sudan has a very large Christian minority. Uh, you know, a large minority of people who don't believe in anything at all. Um, so, you know, those types of people immediately have a target on their back because they don't fall into this vision for what Sudan should be. Um, and into that as well as, you know, journalists, the educated doctors, you know, people who traditionally stand up to these types of oppression in countries, um, you know, they also have a target on their back too. So, you know, that was in 1989. Throughout the 90s, um, leading into the 2000s, the, the Bashir regime essentially tries to implement that vision, um, mm. which leads to, um, you know, two civil wars in the course of 30 years, uh, four genocides hidden within those civil wars. Mm. Um, you know, the low estimates in this time period, over two and a half million Sudanese have been killed. Um, you know, millions more forced to leave their homes. Um, you know, even there's been some more positive news coming out of Sudan the past year. Uh, but even now there's still millions of Sudanese who can't go back to their homes and who are still living in refugee camps. Um, and so that's been life in Sudan for the past 30 years, essentially, is if you don't, if you're not ethnically Arab and want to follow an extreme version of Islam, um, you have a target on your back, which by some estimates is like 85% of the country, essentially. And it's, it's, it's crazy to hear because over the last probably like four or five years, especially in our country and across the entire world, we hear this rhetoric, um, maybe a different, um, rallying cry, but it's very same rhetoric, right? Like Mm. focusing around all, all of this. So just to imagine that this happened under kind of like under the main media, um, noses for so long that like it, it was allowed to spread like this. It's just alarming and kind of sickening. And also like, um, just to hear like the oppression for doctors or educators or journalists. And we're seeing that today. Um, and to see the ripple effect of what happened in Sudan and what's happening today is kind of, it's frightening to tell you the truth. Yeah. It's, um, you know, a lot of, I guess a lot of people in my field, we also keep an eye on what's happening in other countries, um, Mm. that have similar issues because a lot of authoritarian leaders or just straight up dictators, they also look at what their fellow dictators and authoritarians are doing and they hit copy paste all the time Mm. (laughs) into their country. (laughs) That's awful. That's so, that's, that's awful because like we're, we're talking about like, we, we're, we're talking about human beings thinking that they're so much better that they want to wipe off other human beings off the face of the planet so they could have control. Like, mm-hmm. that is, I don't think that that really sinks in. Like, it didn't sink in for me for a long, long time that, like, they're systematically pushing people out and killing people in order to have control. Like, it's not, it's not a disagreement. It's not pol- politics, like, one side versus another. It's one side legitimately trying to wipe the others off the face of the planet. Yeah. So, uh, okay. So you, you hear about this, you learn about this, you talk to, um, Sudanese and then you go over there Mm -hmm. and that must've been, okay. So you're, like you said, you're six, two white dude (laughs) going into this country, um, 
to learn to kind of soak up more what was that experience was it just like a culture shock was it just a lot to handle how did you handle that personally there's so many questions that i can go into this the first time you step into sudan when you get off the plane the first time take me back there take me back to that moment yeah so sudan was also my first time out of the country altogether so (laughs) that was your first place ever that was my first mistake (laughs) (laughs) i will say when i went we my wife and i went to vacation in the bahamas several years after my first trip and i was like man this is not even no wonder people le- like to travel. Yeah, not even technically leaving the U.S., but this is still so easy. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, I remember, you know, a lot of people who will go to a place like Sudan, the, when they step off the plane or walk in the refugee camp for the first time, it's not what they see, it's what they smell that mm. automatically makes you realize that, like, you know, I am far, far from home. <laughs> Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I, you know, I landed, um, at that point, South Sudan had just become a new country. Um, the only way to get into Sudan was to essentially slip across the border illegally from South Sudan. Mm. Um, so we flew into South Sudan, um, and started reaching into refugee groups, uh, that had fled from, from Northern Sudan. Um, the part of Sudan we work in, uh, specifically is called the Nuba mountains. So it kind of straddles the Sudan, South Sudan border. So a lot of refugees from Nuba have fled into South Sudan because of what's been happening there, uh, since 2011. Um, and so we started reaching out to those Nuba refugee groups to find a way to get up to the border and then essentially get across, Mm-hmm. Um, and I was really uh, amazed on just how open the Sudanese were. Um, you know, they seemed to realize on the front end that like, I wasn't just a normal journalist. Um, I mean, I had a camera, I had a notepad, like I could have looked like, I mean, I'm also a white dude to <laughs> stepping off the plane. I probably looked like a journalist to a certain degree. Yeah. You- if you had a if you had a accent, they'd probably be like, "Oh, he's from South Africa or something." Yeah. Um, but yeah, uh, but you know, once I started asking questions, I think it was the type of questions I was asking. They, mm. the Sunnis I was meeting with over there, realized pretty quickly, like, this is a guy that's actually looking for a way to help us, not just mm. tell a story for a newspaper. Um, and so the doors start opening really quickly after that, and as you start getting closer to the border. You know, you start meeting more Nuba refugees. Um, you know, you start getting all these cultural shocks and experiences, not just things like, um, uh, you know, poverty or lack of education. You know, those are all issues that are tied to war zones. Uh, but just the trauma, too, of people you're meeting who have been through unspeakable tragedy. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you actually cross into the war zone um, and that is a very surreal experience. Um, I remember the, the first border town we got out in, uh, is along the front lines at that point. It was a little town called Dar. I remember stepping out of the land cruiser and almost slipping cause there were so many bullet casings on the ground. Um, cause oh the, the Sudanese government had come through about two weeks beforehand and essentially tried to wipe out the entire town. Um, the, were the, you scared in that moment? Like, were you like frightened? I felt so many things in that moment, like, <laughs> uh, like it, like saying like surreal of just like, 
I remember stepping out and, and literally slipping on bullet casings and kind of catching my balance and standing back up and looking around, seeing like a destroyed Sudanese government main battle tank. And, you know, there's lines of trenches dug, you know, dug all over the place. And some of those trenches, you know, there's, you know, people's bodies have been buried there because there's nowhere else to bury them. Um, and just, just realizing like, you know, in that also seeing people walking around acting like this is completely normal. like soldiers on patrol. Like I remember watching a a woman walking to a water point nearby to, to fetch clean water. You know, they're, they're one of the the strangest things was seeing kids um, like they were picking up the bullet casings and like throwing them at each other. Like they were playing tag almost. Oh my goodness. Um, And they were, (laughs) and they were laughing and playing and it was like the most normal thing in the world to them. Violence, the violence and the hate (laughs) were so normalized. It's so normalized. Yeah, it's just like the way they live. Yeah, yeah, it's mind blowing. Yeah, and so it was like, I mean, I probably felt every human emotion possible on that trip. Uh, I mean, just in the war zone alone. I mean, also meeting you know some of the refugees and some of the camps and everything too. Um, But yeah, man, it was it was a wild. It was a wild experience. I mean, it felt otherworldly to a certain degree. Yeah. I remember the first time I went to Africa, it was not that, it, not that at all. But I had similar of like, wh- like people live this way. Like this is, this is not like, I was thinking like, oh, this is going to be maybe like a different state or something. But like to see like true poverty firsthand, it, uh, I still can't wrap my head around it when I think back on those days. Like, I think it's a dream in a lot of ways because it was so far from what I was used to. So, uh, I tried, I, I, I think I understand it a little bit, but definitely not in <laughs> slipping on bullet type things. That's, that's insane. Um, so, okay. So you come back, you have this footage, you have these emotions, you have everything. Did you know in that moment you were going to start a nonprofit or did you just go to learn more? Yeah, so at that point, uh, we had already started Operation Broken Silence, like pretty, it was pretty close to the trip. <laughs> um, so I knew that something was going to come out of this. And when I got back, I wanted the, at least the legal infrastructure, you know, to already exist to, to get started. Um, but yeah, I mean, it was on that first trip as I started meeting and talking to people. Um, I started hearing the same things repeated. Um, so, you know, I talked to rebel commanders, farmers, teachers, you know, rebel soldiers, you know, you know, Nuba political officials, uh, pretty much anyone and everyone I could from all across the, the, the spectrum of, of their culture. And I kept hearing the four, the same four things come up over and over again. Um, like, you know, we need an organization out there in the world who, um, is essentially helping us tell our own story and raising money for our solutions. Mm-hmm. Um, and their solutions revolve around education and healthcare specifically. Um, and they also tagged on a lot at the end, you know, if you meet someone in the U S government or at the UN who, who might be able to, you know, help, you know, here's a list of talking points. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Just in case. Yeah. Um, and so, but on that, on that trip, I, I also asked like, you know, I'm glad you're telling me these things and I'm, I'm going to help, but like, there's gotta be another organization in the world that's already doing this. And like, everyone would just laugh at me and it's like, no, like there's like, no one cares. No organization in the world working on these things. 
And so, and so that's where the, the real vision and the heart of the organization came from is like, you know, these people are telling us they need help in these specific areas. That seems like a good place to start. So, so remind go. me, remind me of the four, was it education, healthcare, uh, education, healthcare, media, and advocacy essentially. Awesome. Um, so, you know, but you know, the way that works is every now and then we have a media team drop into Sudan or, or Yida refugee camp, which is the the main one where uh, two of two of the schools we sponsor are there. Um, and we just let the Sudanese talk to the camera, essentially. Um, and, you know, we make documentary films and videos off of that. Uh, but then we use their stories and what they're saying to raise money for education, healthcare specifically. So... That, that leads me to my next question, which is great. Because so we've both been in nonprofits. We've both seen it work and not work. And especially nowadays, I think I'm a little more, um, I've changed my, my ways of thinking about it. It's like I look back on some of my pictures in Africa and I have like all these kids around <laughs> me. I'm taking these pictures and I create this sense of white saviorism. Like I was going to save them or help them or, or make everything better for them type thing. Like I had the solutions instead of thinking of like, no, this is their culture. Like we can be support and we can um, buoy, but it's their decisions. It's their their goals. So, how do you see or how do you combat like that? I call it white saviorism or Western influence into like basically taking your ego out of it and helping Sudanese for Sudanese. Yeah. So I, I think there's two things there. One is, you know, when a crisis begins, whether it's um, a natural disaster or war, there is an immediate need that pretty much only Western organizations can meet. And that's the mm. Western orgs just can throw a lot of money, food and medicine into refugee camps as they're building. You know, if it's a, a an earthquake or a typhoon, like they can bring in resources that no one else can. And so th- there is a need for, you know, that type of emergency really hard hitting, really fast relief work that just comes in and says, like, if we don't do this, a lot of people are going to die. I I think the white savior dilemma creeps in after that moment when Mm. things start calming, not necessarily calming down, but a new normal starts setting in and the longer term needs and challenges start coming up. Like, you know, education, healthcare are the two I'm familiar with just because the work that we do, those are two very complicated things. And, mm-hmm. you know, the the way that can look, you know, is maybe it's an American teacher drops into a refugee camp and tries to start telling, you know, the local teachers, like, here's how you should really be doing things. And what really mm-hmm. needs to be happening is, you know, uh, you know, people who have been traumatized, you know, there's a lot of research out there showing that when they are able to engage with their culture again, you know, when kids are able to go to school and learn and play, like there's a lot of therapy and relief just in that aspect. So, mm-hmm. you know, you know, the the American teacher dropping in and saying something like that, oftentimes it's not just offensive, but it's also completely not what's needed. <laughs> yeah, it's like setting back all the work that's being done yeah. for these this group of people. Yeah, so, I, you know, I think the best way to, to kind of curb that um, is local ownership from the beginning. Uh, you know, not even local ownership that you hand off, you know, at a later date, um, but like local ownership truly from the start um, mm-hmm. so that there's nothing to hand off 
um, you know, the people who are living through this are at the heart of leading the way out of it, essentially. Mm. Um, so, you know, that means, um, you know, for us, like we don't do like the voluntourism type, <laughs> like we don't take groups of donors over to Sudan cause that's not what the Sudanese need. Um, there's not the selfie <laughs> pictures and you're not putting the pictures on your, like if you go to your website, like I don't see the pictures of mass groups of white, like groups helping build something and then all smiling because they're going to leave and those people are still going to need like they didn't even get the skills to build it somebody did it for them and walked away and now they're like oh well when this breaks or i was in water wells so mm -hmm. when this water well breaks and nobody knows how to fix it like they're right back where they were and we're here having our taco bell you know yeah. and so we did not save them in any ways we set them back um and so i really like going back to your website, it's like you see Sudanese, your videos are focused on Sudanese. It's talking about Sudanese teachers and Sudanese healthcare. And it's, um, and you guys stay in the background as much as possible. And I really, really appreciate that. But I think like today's, um, nonprofit cultures, especially the ones that are like, buy this cute little bracelet that we got and we have the kids around <laughs> us it's just not it's not doing it anymore because it's actually doing more harm in the long term yeah um and you know for for us um you know we also have to keep uh there there kind of has to be local ownership of the stuff we're involved in in sudan anyways just because of the security challenges um mm. you know the sudanese government up until very recently, traditionally has completely hated Westerners, specifically Americans. Um, and so having a bunch of Americans running around everywhere doing everything is a good way to get a lot of people killed, <laughs> um, including your aid workers. Um, and so, you know, you know, so that's another reason that we, you know, push towards local ownership. Um, and we keep a very, very low, you know, very light footprint um, as much as humanly possible. Now, you know, of course the Sudanese still need our resources 24 seven, but they don't need us there 24 <laughs> seven. Yeah, exactly. Um, exactly. And, and I think that's kind of where the partnership has worked really well. Um, well, you used the word I was about to say, it's a partnership, <laughs> yeah. it's a relationship. It's not a handout. It's not a, uh, you don't have a, like what I appreciate about you is there's no ego to it, right? Like you're not like I did this. It's a lot of it like, no, I'm partnered with these people to help the best that I can for them to get off their feet or get on their feet. I'm not picking them up and standing them up. They're doing it by themselves and I'm supporting them, which I really, really appreciate. Yeah. Our, our two schools in, in Yida refugee camp are a great example of that. Um, it's all Sudanese teachers who are from the Nuba mountains there. Um, it's all kids from the Nuba mountains. Um, there's not a single white American staffer at the school. There's not a single external staffer at all from anywhere else. Um, you know, a few times a year, someone pops in that's, you know, either one of us or just someone, another org we're connected to that happens to be in the area. And they'll just say like, Hey, you know, we just want to check in and, you know, we get updates from the school pretty much every week, but you know, sometimes we'll have a extra set of eyes drop in just to kind of personally just say, like, Hey, you know, how's it going? And I'll say, Oh, here's what's going well. Here's what's not going well. You know, here's, here's how the money's being used here. You know, here's what we need mo more money for. Um, and we just try to, to, to deliver on that. And, um, you know, we've seen the, we've seen the results over time. Like the, our primary school NIDA started in 2015, 
you know, with like 120 kids and a few teachers. Today, there's 12 teachers there, about 900 kids, and it's the top performing primary school in the entire region. We had absolutely nothing to do with that. I mean, we just put the money into it, but it's all the Sudanese teachers who made that happen. Um, That's awesome. I was about (laughs) to say, I was about to say, what does success look like in Sudan to you? And you just answered it. You just nailed it on it. Like, I don't, I don't know, like repeat that because I don't, I want that to sink into anyone who's listening to this. Repeat those numbers one more time because you did nothing but support Sudanese to make this happen. Say it again. Yeah. So 2015, uh, our primary school, Nita, uh, we decided to step in. The school actually already existed. We decided to step in and start funding it. Um, And, you know, five years later, you know, 12 teachers, 900 kids, and now the top performing school. Um, in the entire Nuba region. Um, there's actually teachers from other Nuba schools that actually come visit the school that we sponsor so they can actually learn from those teachers there because they've, they've been given the freedom to learn themselves and do things themselves. And now they're able, they're able to spread that knowledge outward, <laughs> which is really good. That's fucking awesome. Yes, that's <laughs> so cool. I'm so, that makes me so jazzed <laughs> up. Yes. Um, okay. So we talk a little, a lot about, uh, about the Sudanese and there's still a lot to do and we'll get to that, like how people can help, but I kind of want to focus on Mark a little sure. bit. Um, do you ever get beat up emotionally or like take this intense work? Like you, you have to carry it on your shoulders a little bit. Like I, or you're a superhero. One of the two, <laughs> like which one is it? I'm not a superhero. So <laughs> 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 no, that, that's a, that's a good question. Um, I would say I actually didn't start feeling overwhelmed until last year, um, was when it all finally started catching up to me. Um, I've been over to Sudan several times now. Um, and I've always had this unique ability to essentially just shut my emotions off because there's a job that needs to be done. Um, Last year, 2019, that all completely went out the window. Um, So Sudan went through a very um, peaceful uprising against the regime that that was actually somewhat successful. Um, But there was a lot of things happening last year in Sudan that were happening very quickly, like rapid fire back to back. And there just wasn't any time to process any of it. Um, Mm. I remember kind of two things specifically, um, in April, um, Omar al-Bashir, Sudan's dictator was actually arrested by his own military because protests were so massive and the military felt like they were running out of options to, so people stood up against him and they (laughs) actually got him out of the office. I remember that. I was so stoked about that. I I remember a, a Sudanese friend texted me and he's like, Hey, like, this is going to hit the news in about an hour, but Bashir was just arrested. And th- this is a guy who's told me information early before, and he's never been wrong. And I was like, really? <laughs> like, <laughs> you were like even on the fence a little bit, like, oh, come on, this is big news. Yeah. And, um, but, but even in that moment, like it was announced and the military essentially announced, like we're putting one of our generals in charge who is just as bad as Bashir. And this yeah. all happened. And then it's this like, all happened in like three hours. And so we went from like this f- victorious feeling moment of like, wow, like the the symbol of everything that's gone wrong in Sudan was just taken out. Like we're about to start seeing some real change happen. It might take a while, but we're about to start seeing it. And immediately, there's this new threat that emerges like instantly, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and just immediately going into like 
I mean, not damage control, but just like we have to figure out like where this is going. We have to figure out really fast. Um, and of course, you know, uh, Sudan was in the news again later that year in the summer in June, um, when the, the, the military massacred a lot of protesters in Khartoum in the capital. Um, yeah, that was all over the news. Um, and seeing that happen was, I think what finally, I don't want to say broke me, but finally overwhelmed me of like, we were used Mm -hmm. to seeing those things happen in the Nuba mountains and in Darfur, another part of Sudan called Blue Nile, but to see it like essentially on live TV happening in the capital, you know, seeing Sudan's war zones come into the capital um, was really a shocking, even for me who's seen, who's seen those things for years, there was just something extra shocking about that. Um, but even then, like within a couple of weeks, protesters were back in the streets. They forced the military back at the table and they, worked out a deal for a transitional government over the next three years. But I remember all that was happening last year and we, we roll around to, to Christmas, I guess really not that long ago, just four months ago. Yeah. I was speaking to a small group of potential supporters um, at a guy's house and just halfway through speaking, I just started like weeping just cause I hadn't had time to like <laughs> process any just, of it. <laughs> it just, but I was yeah, talking about just, all of it, it. and all just finally yeah. caught up with me. And I remember like rubbing my eyes. I was like, man, like, I never cry. Like, this is the worst thing ever. What is this? <laughs> <laughs> what is this liquid? Like I'm a cry. I cry at everything. Yeah. So like I'm like I'm an Enneagram four. I feel yeah. it. I, I it comes out. Like there's no there's no stopping yeah. me. So which is why I was probably terrible at like humanitarian work in country <laughs> because I did not have that wall at all. I was just like, why, why, why? And it's like you just can't have that there. But um I definitely know that feeling, but so you cry, you're overwhelmed with those emotions. How did you recenter yourself or get back to a place of back to work? Do you have um, hobbies? Do you have um, like a list of things you do? What what gets you back plugged in, like kind of refocused? I got it all out. Now I'm back into it. Yeah, um, I'm still figuring that out, I think. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I mean, there, there's a few things. Um, yeah, I've been, uh, Olivia and I will be married for 10 years here in May. Um, and we have two kids and having family around you all the time does help a lot. You know, having, Mm. you know, essentially my life partner, I can always go to when I feel like, uh, like this is getting to be too much. (laughs) Like, (laughs) um, you know, that, that's a great place to go. Um, yeah, I, I found that reading fiction or playing like strategy games on my phone I, as a distraction sometimes helps. Like yes. sometimes it's not that I need to process something. Sometimes it's I'm processing too much and I just need to like just. I just need yeah. to chill. <laughs> I just need to chill. Yeah. Um, so so those things have helped, have helped. But overall, like, you know, I think, you know, Sudan is living in a new world now. And, and so am I to a certain degree. And it's just going to take time to figure figure out, you know, what that's going to look like. Yeah, speaking of a new world, like um, COVID nineteen hits, yeah. you're in a no nonprofit world. So like I, the reason I got out of nonprofit is it beat me up so much because I'm such an emotional being. I pour everything I have into it, and then I would have to go ask for more money. And I was like, I just hated it. I hated yeah. the idea of like fundraising or doing things like that. COVID nineteen hit. Have how are you doing? How is how is OBS? Like what's going on? Yeah, so it's been. The past few weeks have been a ride. Um, 
so I guess it was mid March when, you know, coronavirus went from being like a thing in the news to like a looming cloud over all of us of mm-hmm. like this thing's about a hit and it's gonna it's gonna be bad. Um, of course, end of March we also have our annual gala, which is one of our which is our biggest fundraising event of the year and raises a lot of a good chunk of the money the schools in need to get. And we obviously had to postpone it for safety and health reasons. Um, so that was like an immediate $25,000 hit essentially overnight. Mm. And at the same time, we're watching one-time giving and people who start fundraising pages and ask their friends and family again, all of that just stops right. like in a matter of just a few days. <laughs> Cause people, people are losing yeah. jobs. People are like, their whole worlds are getting upturned and that, that in turns upheavals you yeah. guys because a lot of the support that you had just can't give right yeah. now. And, you know, we, you know, I think the, the scariest thing for me in that moment is realizing like we're better prepared than most nonprofits to survive this. And this is still going to be really hard. Um, you know, we, could you talk a little bit about yeah. that? Like a little bit about that? Like why aren't most nonprofits prepared? For yeah. This? So I think part of it is there's a, um, there's a flaw in the way our country looks at charities. Like, Charities are told to run on shoestrings budgets, don't save money, put everything into programming, you know, don't pay your staff well, you know. And over time, as you probably experience, it gets exhausting and it wears you down. And that's me. That's yeah. me. Yep, I got I got my ass handed to me and I yeah. got out. Like that's how bad it got it beat me up. I was like, I'm out, pe- yeah, dude. That, that's sucks. what a lot of people do. It's completely understandable. Um but yeah, when we started OBS, you know, I remember looking really hard at the the charity landscape and seeing a shift was already happening. Uh, there were other organizations out there saying like we're going to do things based on what our mission is, not on what a mm. charity rating group that has this arbitrary rating system that makes zero sense to anybody. Um, not on what they say we should do. And I was like, you know, we need, like, we're just getting started. Like, this is a good, whether than having to switch five years down the road to that, like, let's just start out that way. Um, and so the way we've gone around about fundraising, um, you know, we've always emphasized, for example, like monthly recurring giving as kind of the core, like the top tier way you can be involved with us. Um, it's like most nonprofits only like 10 to 20% of their annual revenue, their annual donations comes from monthly recurring givers. Like about 40% of our annual revenue is monthly recurring givers. Cause we've always, That's we've always emphasized that yeah. core. And as monthly givers are with you, they start learning more about you and about Sudan, about the cause and they get really attached to it. So even when something like a pandemic breaks out, like we haven't, we've only lost like two recurring donors in the past, mm. um, you know, a few weeks and they lost their jobs. So that's completely understandable. <laughs> no. And, but, but I like, so I think businesses as a whole are reaching this because like loyalty is not something that 
U.S. brands or companies in general mm. know, especially nonprofits, they don't know this term loyalty yeah. because why are people loyal to you? Do you have the lowest prices or what? Are you convenient? Whatever. Instead of just like truly being loyal, yeah. right? And so it sounds like you created a tribe, a community, a group of people who are loyal because they're invested as much as you are or at least a part of as much as you are where they... They're like, okay, so I need to get my bread. I need to get my um, drinks. I need to do this. And then I also need to give the OBS. Like, this is yeah. my important sta- scale. So that's that's super awesome. And that's super encouraging for someone who is like me. Who's like, I saw all the money take away. And then I was like, we got to start all over again. <laughs> yeah. Over and over and over and over again. Yeah. And, and our big thing, too, because the, the Sudanese, because of the situation they're in, um, things are so have been so chaotic there for so long and so dangerous like anything stability wise we can push towards them just helps them feel better about trying to make their country a better place so so knowing that you know there's this stream of money that's always going to be there you know it might ebb and flow cuz one time giving ebbs and flows but at the there will always be a backstop there there will always be some money coming it's almost like cash yeah. flow. Like they have their cash flow coming yeah. in. And it, um, it helps them plan. Um, you know, it helps, you know, it helps us plan too. And based on like where else we need to go to raise money based on, you know, how many recurring donors we have in a year. Um, so yeah, so, I, so cool. I think that's why we, that's probably the biggest reason why we were better prepared is we had this core group of supporters that, um, you know, we're going to be one of the last things they walk away from. Um, before they shout out yeah. to them i'm <laughs> shouting out to the core group right now so if you listen to this this is your shout yeah, out that, um yeah our, our monthly recurring giving family we call uh the renewal um which is also the name of the high the high school we sponsor anita um because you know their monthly giving helps the sudanese essentially renew their country over the long run um that's so awesome yeah that's so they're awesome. great <laughs> Okay, now now they're awesome. We love them. We shout them out. Well, now let's talk to people who are maybe hearing about OBS for the first time, maybe learning about Operation Broken Silence for the first time and hearing about Sudan and kind of the, the history. How do you, like, what is the first thing someone should do? Like, now they're like, okay, I hear about it. I'm maybe even checked out the website or your Instagram or something, but I want to do something. Now what? Yeah. Can you help them right now? <laughs> Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, so yeah, if you haven't checked out our website or uh, uh, Instagram, um, I would say do that first and kind of especially link up with us on Instagrams. That's a good place to kind of start learning kind of more about Sudan, about what we do. Um, after that, I would say even if all you can give is $5, like go to our website, obsilence.org and just make the $5 donation. That gets you on our email list, you know, once a month, we have a newsletter go go out about Sudan, some stuff in between. Um, so that's another good way to learn about us. But, um, you know, I always push, like, make a donation your first thing. I mean, A, I mean, let's be honest. We're a nonprofit. We fundraise. <laughs> <laughs> they need it. Come but um, it's also that individual when they give saying, like, you know, this might not always be part of my life, but right now I feel like I should do something about this. And so I'm going to make a, a small donation and kind of see where it goes from here. I even like, I even tell people when they talk about donation type things, it's like, I almost say like, 
they're investments. You're investing, even if it's just that five dollars. Who like that five dollars might teach a kid who goes and becomes the leader of the new Sudan that starts solving these issues. So you literally invested in the future of this situation with five bucks, which is listen, like three cocktail, like three. Three five dollar bills get you one cocktail in this yeah. town. So like you, you can do it. Trust me. Yeah, and I I, I think too. I, I look, you know, as far as giving money goes, I look at it less as giving money and more as money being a vehicle to give opportunity. Like you just said, mm. like you know, what a lot of our giving is tied to specific like cost at our school. For example, it's like a you know a teacher at our primary school essentially gets paid a hundred bucks a month, which doesn't sound like a lot over there. That's a lot of money. Um, yeah. but just saying like, Hey, you know, if you give a hundred dollars, like one of the teachers in our primary school, they got their salary for a month and like you're supporting them for a month. They don't have to worry about anything except teaching. That's it. <laughs> That's yeah. so cool. That's so cool. So this is, this is, um, coming out uh, today as you listen to this for the first time, you can, if you're listening to it when it comes out, if you're listening to it like three months ago or like three months from now, shame on you, <laughs> but this is dropping on May 5th. What's May 5th? So May 5th is a special day of global giving uh, called Giving Tuesday Now. Um, so uh, some of your listeners have probably heard of Giving Tuesday. It comes right after Thanksgiving. It kind of kicks off the, the giving season, um, you know, whether you're volunteering or, or giving money to your favorite nonprofit. Um, the, the good people behind Giving Tuesday and that annual event that all nonprofits can participate in um, have seen how hard the nonprofit sector has been hit by the coronavirus pandemic, um, specifically with funding and the need for volunteers. Um, and so they decided to make an emergency day of giving and volunteerism called Giving Tuesday Now. Um, and so that's on May 5th. Uh, we actually just launched our uh, our campaign as the day we're recording this. <laughs> yes. Um, and we're really happy with the way the video, the video turned out. Um, so yeah, if, if you want to learn more about that, uh, it's plastered on the homepage of our website. That's obsilence.org. Um, we have a, a campaign just for Giving Tuesday now. Uh, we're trying to recruit 50 uh, new monthly givers by May 5th, even if it's only giving $10 a month. Uh, you know, we're already, I think last time I checked, we're already about halfway there. Um, there we go. And, you know, there we, we go. We still got like a week, a week to get there. So so yeah, if you're listening to this, you know, today, Giving Tuesday Now, like head over to our website and uh, check out the campaign. It's a good way to learn a little more about Sudan. And you can also uh, pitch, into, pitch into our goal for the day. We'll also be having links in um, the bio on my website. And then also in my stories, there's actually a donated, um, a donate sticker that will be going up on May f- um, 5th today this as this launch too that you can just click donate and a hundred percent of the proceeds will go straight to OBS. So make sure you do that. Um, I'll be making a contribution too. So like everybody, as you listen to it, even if you're past May 5th, you can give a little bit and I'll be, um, posting about that too. So we're all in this together, right? Yeah, man. That's awesome. Yes. So, um, okay. Well, I'm, I'm super jazzed. Like I, I, I like, this is like the boost that I needed because like it's this world's so kind of, kind of sad and fucked up right now that I kind of like this, like 
this little boost of like you're still doing it like i'm <laughs> so jealous of you that you're still doing it because like i i got you know i got beat up so much but this is like you're such an inspiration you're doing great work um and then after all this we can like get together and party and raise money doing something else yes right? i am so ready to stop the zoom calls in my bedroom and to like go have a beer with someone or have our annual gala yes <laughs> yes so we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna all share beers and um support after all this is over hopefully shortly but um mark thank you so much i appreciate you um everybody click below and uh, above and everywhere um and support awesome thanks a lot man thanks for having me